What are the Uniform Palliative Care Guidelines? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me is Constance Dolan, an advanced practice nurse and co-director of the Outpatient Palliative Care Service at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, and co-author of the Journal of Hospice and Palliative Nursing article, the National Consensus Project and National Quality Forum, Preferred Practices in Care of the Imminently Dying. Ms. Dahlin, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you very much. Explain how the document called the Clinical Practical Guidelines for Palliative Care was developed. So the Clinical Practical Guidelines for Quality Palliative Care, which we call the National Consensus Project, actually started in 2001 when leaders from the field gathered in New York to try and come together to think about a common definition of palliative care for the United States. And as you can imagine, we couldn't all reach consensus at that time. And what came out of it was thinking about how we wanted to define palliative care in the United States. We had hospice guidelines and standards that the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization had, but we didn't have it for palliative care or non-hospice patients. And so we looked at what other countries had been doing, such as Australia, the United Kingdom, and Canada, and came up with guidelines that talked about how palliative care end of life care should be defined and how it should be delivered. And through that process, came up with a document that went through some domains and descriptions and then had references for anybody to look up aspects of palliative care. So there are two documents. One is about a 100-page document, and then the other is an executive uh, version, which speaks about how to best provide care for people with life-threatening illnesses. And where are these documents available? If you go to the website HPNA, which is the Hospice and Palliative Nurses Association, and it's hpna.org, then you click on National Consensus Project, and that is where the guidelines are housed. What groups collaborated to develop the guidelines? So we started out with several groups, but the four groups who really came together to write the final document was the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, the Center to Advance Palliative Care, the Hospice and Palliative Nurses Association, and the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organizations. And all of these are the major organizations that affect end-of-life care in the United States. How has the document been used? Well, we find that people are using the document to think about education for clinicians across all the disciplines. We also find that people, in thinking about developing palliative care programs, of which there are about 2,000 in hospitals across the country, look at what we have set forth and are using that to say to their administration, you know, we do need a chaplain. We do need somebody to help out perhaps in the volunteer component and do really good bereavement. We need to have all of our physicians and nurses get certified. So it's really been a blueprint for people to think about optimal practice. Do you have an idea of about how many organizations are using the guidelines? So we are in a dissemination process, which we're really trying to look at how they're being utilized across settings from like the acute teaching hospital setting to community hospital to long-term care and home care. And that... We're hoping to come out with a better sense of that because we haven't done as much of looking at that. What happened was that the National Quality Forum adopted the document and used um, it in and approved it, if you will, and gave it imprimatur, and then they came out with 38 preferred practices. 
And so we're sort of looking at talking to people about those practices and knowing that those will probably become standards of which people are surveyed for in a few years. And so hopefully we're hearing more from people about how they are using them and helping them to operationalize them. But that's kind of the next phase. And what entity would be the surveyor? Well, we're thinking at this point that it might be um, the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Hospitals. But um, once the National Quality Forum adopts a process, then you try to look for looking at outcomes, figuring out who is the best place to look at these preferred practices. What are the domains of the project? So within practice, we felt like there were eight domains in terms of thinking about how one team provides care. So you have the structures and processes, which talks about who needs to be on your team, what education they need, what certification they need, what does the team look like in the sense of it should be an interdisciplinary team because really no one can do this by themselves, and that you think about how do you do the support for people. And then domain two is physical aspects of care, and that looks at pain and symptom management and thinking about assessment and reassessment and management and treatment and what's evidence-based practice. Then we have domain three, which is psychological and psychiatric aspects of care, which is really talking about when people have a life-threatening illness, what are the sequelae, what are the things that we expect as a reaction for both patients and their families? Because one of the things about end-of-life care is it is not just the patient, it's the family, however you define that around them. And so thinking of it as a unit like you would in pediatrics, but also saying that in terms of thinking about to provide, you know, respectful death process that we do good grief and bereavement. Then we have social aspects of care of thinking about what happens to the patient as they lose control, which really dying is, and their family structure and how they're making decisions and how do they need to continue the family support piece. So that's a big section. And then we have domain five, which is spiritual, religious, and existential aspects in the sense that most people going through this process have some sort of questions about why or what's next or what does this mean and thinking about how do we support that and actually discuss it since we're taught in our culture not to discuss sex, religion, or politics. I mean, this is such a big part of it. And then number six is cultural aspects. As you know, we all come from different cultures and you can have different cultures just by the institution, let alone where people's country of origin is or their language or their religion. So looking at how do we make sure that we respect people's language, dietary practices, and rituals at the end of life. Finally, the last two are care of the imminently dying patient. What does that look like? It's really hard because most people see death and dying on the media where it's kind of clean and doesn't smell and is quick. And, you know, we're having to help patients and families through a process, which, you know, can be really hard because it's really about letting go on both parts. And then the last domain is the ethical and legal aspects of care, which is really important in terms of thinking about it's okay for patients to say no for treatment. It's okay to let people die. If people have decision-making capacity, how do we help people make appropriate decisions? And, you know, what is the law set in terms of optimal pain and symptom management and making sure that even if patients can't speak for themselves, that we're doing the right thing. So it's really a wide breadth of areas to think about for patients at that time. Ms. Dahlin, what feedback have you received from healthcare professionals about the guidelines? The biggest feedback that we've heard from people is they're grateful that we now have continuity and definitions and that if I talk about a palliative care 
a program and somebody else does, that there are really some key components that are now um, consistent across the board. I think the other thing is that people are saying is this helps them to go back to their institutions and say, you know, I need education. We need to have experts when uh, patients are more complex in their pain and symptom needs. And, you know, you have everyone else who's sort of afraid to do pain and symptom management at that time. So I think that they've found it helpful just to have something in writing. How do the guidelines dovetail with the efforts of the Center to Advance Palliative Care? So the guidelines are an educational foundation of thinking about this is what a palliative care program should look like. And the Center to Advance Palliative Care really does a lot of toolkits and helps people operationalize a lot of aspects of um, palliative care. So they may take, you know, the preferred practices from the National Quality Forum that has different preferred practices out of each domain and say, this is the best way to think about implementing this. And this is how you would measure that you've met the standards. Uh, so it's one thing to have the standards. There's another to say how you've achieved it. And I think that's where the center comes in with that work to help with that. Give us an example of a project domain and accompanying preferred practices. For instance, in the imminently dying patient, you know, that's about how people die and making sure you're being respectful and you've talked to them about what's going on. So one of the preferred practices is recognize and document the transition to the active dying phase and communicate to the patient, family, and staff the expectation of imminent death. Now, that's something in our culture sometimes we're afraid of doing, of saying, you know, this person's dying. We sort of sometimes talk around it and say, well, you know, there's nothing more we can do or we don't expect this to be long. But I think there is a knowledge base that clinicians have when you look at a patient that you have a sense that, you know, their vital signs are changing, their color is changing, their urine output is changing, their mental status is changing, and that you can say this is, you know, really going to be a day or so. And, you know, families need that information so that they can help do closure and make some decisions on what they need to do. So that's an important one. Another one is preferred practice number 30 that says treat the body after the death with respect according to cultural and religious practices of the family and in accordance of local laws. And I think sometimes we forget that we've done all this work up to when the patient is going to die, and that is gone well, and then it's like, okay, now the patient's dead, what do we do? And so that sense of, you know, offering for the family, do you want to help us wash the body one more time? We do that a lot at home, but in hospitals, a lot of times nurses get protective, and yet for families, that can be a wonderful way of sort of their last goodbye and sort of helping their grieving process, if it's okay within their culture. The other part might be is to be aware of the culture, because there's some cultures where, you know, there's only the same gender should be touching a body after the death, or, you know, the body's supposed to be facing a certain direction. So all those types of things that we make sure that we've done it well and facilitate good grieving for the family later on. Ms. Dolan, thank you so much for joining us to discuss the Uniform Palliative Care Guidelines. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with you. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions at ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of the ReachMD Library. Thank you for listening.